0: Good morning to all of you, and welcome to the second session of the Renaissance of Jewish Philosophy in America conference. Thanks again to our sponsors, the James Madison Program, the Department of Religion, and the Finkelstein Institute. The session last night discussed Jewish philosophy in America as a political task, but Jewish philosophy cannot be Jewish political philosophy without dealing with the issues of covenant and contract the topic of this morning's session. It's my great pleasure to introduce our two speakers this morning, David Novak and Kenneth Seaskin. It's not just their scholarship that has been a part of the renaissance of Jewish philosophy. It's also their deep friendship over the course of their professional careers. This is most easily apparent in the acknowledgments pages of their books, but those of us who have seen them appear on panels together before can attest that it's evidenced in public gatherings as well. This is not insignificant. A field becomes exciting when people who approach it from d- d- different viewpoints, as Siskin and Novak do, maintain their friendship across the boundaries of their differences. The younger generation of scholars of Jewish philosophy have at least indirectly benefited from the vitality that their conversations have brought to the field. Uh, you have the bios here, but I just want to say just a little bit more about them. David Novak is the J. Richard and Dorothy Schiff Chair of Jewish Studies, Professor of the Study of Religion and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. This term he is the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at the James Madison Program here and a visiting professor in the Department of Religion. His CV now runs to almost 20 books and edited volumes and well over 200 articles. You're not here to hear me run through it. So let me just say in light of the topic of the panel this morning that his work over the last six or seven years focusing on the covenantal basis of public life has been at the forefront of Jewish political theology. Particularly his 2000 book Covenantal Rights which won that year's American Academy of Religion Book Award in Constructive Reflective Studies. His 2004 Charles E. Test Distinguished Visiting Scholar Seminars on Religious Liberty given here at Princeton under the aegis of the James Madison Program. And his most recent book, The Jewish Social Contract, and Essay in Political Theology, which appeared with Princeton University Press last fall. Kenneth Cieskin is the Charles Deering McCormick Professor of Teaching Excellence at Northwestern. The last year has seen publication of both his third book on Maimonides, Maimonides on the Origin of the World, which appeared with Cambridge, as well as his edition of the Cambridge Companion to Maimonides. But to take this as representative of Professor Sieskin's scholarship is to miss the breadth of his work. With essays on um, figures ranging from Plato and Homer to Levinas and Strauss, it's nigh impossible to exceed his breadth. And everything he writes displays his deep skills of close readings and attentiveness to the intricacies of philosophical argumentation. In this regard, I want to call special attention to his essays on the problem of evil from the late 1980s which still hold their power today, as evidenced by their recent reprinting and readers on the Holocaust and on Jewish philosophy. And his 2001 book, Autonomy in Jewish Philosophy, is, in my opinion, second to none in its account and defense of a Jewish philosophical liberalism in which autonomy is at the basis of covenantal life. We'll let both speakers go and take questions after, after both talks, but please join me in welcoming David Novak and Ken Siskin.
1: Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, I would like to express uh, my thanks to the James Madison program, of which I'm very honored to be a consulting scholar, uh, headed by my friend and colleague, Professor Robert George. Uh, I want to give my thanks also to the religion department of Princeton University. I see the chair, Professor Martha Himmelfarb, is here this morning for having honored me by uh, appointing me as a visiting professor this semester here at Princeton. And I would like to thank uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Professor uh, Alan Middleman of the Louis Finkelstein uh, Institute, uh, which to me is especially poignant because this institute is named for my late revered teacher, Professor Louis Finkelstein, uh, who honored me by, and all of those whom he ordained as rabbis, uh, with his signature at the top of my uh, rabbinical uh, diploma. The aim of this conference is to explore the role that the American context has played in my thought as a Jewish philosopher. We need to define what is meant by Jewish philosophy and what is meant by the American context of that philosophy in which I and others as Jewish philosophers engage. Jewish philosophy can mean two intellectual practices which can be done separately or in tandem. One, Jewish philosophy can be philosophical type inquiry into the Jewish tradition to which the Jewish philosopher is personally committed. That is a philosophy of Judaism. Considering the theocentric character of the Jewish tradition, any such philosophy of Judaism must be deemed theology. That theology is philosophical, when it's philosophical, by virtue of its methodology and by virtue of the fact that it employs the type of questions that Western philosophers have perennially asked. And in fact, that's what distinguishes philosophical theology, Jewish philosophical theology, from the what I would call the non-philosophical theology of Talmud and Midrash, and from the anti-philosophical theology of Kabbalah. So we have philosophical theology, non-philosophical theology, and what has to be seen following Gershom Sholem, especially as the anti-philosophical theology of Kabbalah. Now in order for Judaism to remain the prime datum, however, the best philosophical methodology used in any such inquiry is one that does not make the type of ontological and normative claims that would require the Jewish philosopher to essentially deduce the metaphysical and ethical data of the Jewish tradition from them. And for that reason, I have significant theological problems with Maimonides Aristotelianism, and even more so with Hermann Cohn's Kantianism. More so with Cohn than Kant because Maimonides, I think, was far more selectively critical in his use of Aristotle and of Plato than was Cohn in his use of, or submission to Kant. In my own work, I have tried to avoid that kind of reductionism by employing the methods of phenomenology primarily and Wittgensteinian-type linguistic analysis secondarily. So Jewish philosophy, in this sense, is the employment of worldly methods or wisdom. As the rabbi said, Dibra Torah Adam, the Torah speaks according to and with human language to better understand the truth of the Torah, which has been given into the world but is not of it. A point especially made by Maimonides. The second sense of Jewish philosophy is especially Jewish philosophy in its ethical dimension dealing with the relations that the rabbis called adam inter-human interactions. Now the Jewish tradition enunciates normative claims that are assumed to be universal in almost all cases pertaining to human beings per se and not just to Jews in its ethical claims. In understanding the significance of these claims, and arguing for their validity for the world, a Jewish philosopher must argue for them based on rational criteria. That is, at least in principle, criteria that can be agreed upon by all rational persons. In this sense, I have been helped by some of Habermas's notions of communicative reason. This effort becomes more than apologetic rhetoric when a Jewish philosopher can discern how these universal claims were themselves formulated philosophically within the Jewish tradition. So, for example, in that aspect of the Jewish tradition that I'm most interested in, which is the halakha, I treat it as much as I possibly can, and I think it can be treated, as practical reason done by Jews, for Jews, and also for the world. And this is also very much... Uh, enable me in terms of the uh, American context to enter into discussions of public philosophy in our society, the type of questions that Professor George deals with in his work and in his uh, program, uh, and to bring a Jewish perspective uh, which still is not perceived as forcing the Jewish tradition on anybody. Non-philosophical or anti-philosophical Jewish theologians, conversely, usually make or represent the normative claims of the Jewish tradition in an authoritarian manner to a world that does not indeed cannot accept their authority or that of the tradition they purport to uh, represent. So that, for example, in questions of public philosophy and uh, dealing with public moral issues, uh, when somebody simply is asked for, quote, the Jewish point of view, uh, which always kind of amuses me because uh, on most of these questions, there's only a Jewish point of view. There are several Jewish points of view. Uh, I often think that uh, some of these kind of uh, theologians should be required to write in Latin, which doesn't have a definite article. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but very clearly, in terms of representing this philosophically, it's not only an argument for Jewish normative claims in an apologetic form, but it's also an attempt to show, or at least what I attempt to show and some others attempt to show, is that these very claims were formulated philosophically within the tradition before even anybody wanted to know what the tradition had to say uh, outside of it. So therefore, in both ways of doing Jewish philosophy, a Jewish philosopher must be personally committed to the Jewish tradition. Without that full existential commitment, a Jewish philosopher is no more than a philosopher who happens to be a Jew. Even if that philosopher selects examples from the Jewish tradition to illustrate his or her basic philosophical position, which is most often a position that does not require one to be a Jew or to adhere to Judaism. One would, could see this type of, of Jewish philosopher whose commitment to the Jewish tradition uh, is unclear or even in some cases non existent can be compared to a philosopher of law who employs an idea of law per se. But has not personally committed himself or herself to any actual legal system. Now, to speak of a context for doing Jewish philosophy implies that this context has content. And here I think two extremes should be avoided. The first extreme is the reduction of context to content. That is, the content of one's thought provides its own context. So therefore, one simply in this case quotes from the Jewish tradition or whatever uh, and assumes that automatically the one who you're speaking to are part of that uh, tradition. So that, for example, on uh, halakhic or normative questions, people who present a a Jewish point of view uh, frequently will act as if they're dealing with a question that is similar to a ritual question like whether uh, a piece of meat is kosher or not kosher or or whatever. Entirely two different types of questions and yet it's dealt with in the same way because the understanding is that the content has its own context and doesn't have to uh, put itself into a larger context. And of course that means that the Jewish tradition is only interested in the Jews who are committed to it. And in fact this is what my late revered teacher Abraham Joshua Heschel whom a number of us would consider to be the greatest Jewish philosopher who ever did his work in North America. This is what Abraham Joshua actually called pan-halachism, the idea that simply one has to quote the norms of the tradition, uh, even structure them, and that is simply sufficient without any uh, understanding of, of context. Or in Kabbalah, where the Jewish tradition is all about inner divine relations, Therefore, the also the content provides its own context, but of course, the context is divine and not human. Now, both of these theological approaches uh, are inevitably anti-philosophical because they are essentially contra They're against the world. Uh, either notions that simply norms are given by God to the Jewish people, for the Jewish people, and for those who are committed to, to the tradition, and no concern with anyone outside of that uh, uh, circle Uh, or in terms of Kabbalah where actually there is no world and everything is simply within the divine. So there are no external relations, everything's internal relations in terms of the divine. The Torah is in the world but it is not of the world nor is it identical with the world. Now, the reduction of content to context is also the opposite extreme. This is especially apropos to the American context, where not so long ago, Jewish philosophers like Horace Callan, for example, argued for Judaism, as they kind of abstractly conceived it, being fully incorporable into American society and uh, culture. Now, of course, the same could be said for. Uh, Hermann Kohn's World War I German-Jewish essays, especially his 19, little-known 1915 essay, Ein Open a belief an die Juden in America, an open letter to the Jews of America, where Hermann Kohn argued that Americans, this was before America's entry into World War I, should be on the German side rather than with the English and the French, and especially the English and the French and their allies, Tsarist Russia, because Germany was basically the context of modern post-enlightenment uh, Judaism. I've never met anybody who ever read this in America at that time, uh, but I mean this type of argument of a reduction, and of course, Hermann Cohn should not be himself reduced to his wartime essays, as Jacques Derrida did in a disgraceful essay, uh, Rejecting Hermann Cohn. Um, so the task for a Jewish philosopher born, raised, and educated and employed in America, and here I have to assume a common intellectual culture of North America, including both the United States and Canada, s- despite the national differences between these two polities, because I am a citizen of both the United States and Canada now. So I, I, and I think that that's true, actually, that there is a common intellectual culture irrespective of... Uh, uh, well, I, look, I have to uh, you know, justify... I, I'm, a, I'm a monotheist in... Uh, in, um, I only have one God, but I have now uh, two countries. Uh, but to, I, 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 I think that we can say there's a common uh, intellectual culture, and therefore it's to show how the American culture has minimally influenced and maximally enriched my thinking and the thinking of colleagues here as Jewish philosophers, uh, as I've tried to find it above. Now the American context for doing Jewish philosophy, whose content or subject matter is the Jewish tradition, is especially important when the primary interest of a Jewish philosopher is ethical, political, legal theory and praxis. The question such a Jewish philosopher needs to ask herself or himself is, How can I in good faith, how can I in good faith, and I mean good faith both in the sense of bona fides and also emunah, the Hebrew word for faith or certitude before God, how can I in good faith be a full participant in theoretical and practical discussions most immediately but not exclusively conducted in an American context? Now, here is where the idea of society being founded, or at least democratic society being founded in a social contract comes into play. And, of course, that is the subtitle of the session that uh, Ken and I are uh, speaking in. And here is where I have to struggle with two philosophers. One, the fully American philosopher John Rawls, an alumnus of this university, by the way whose seminal 1971 work, A Theory of Justice, has had the greatest effect on American public moral discourse since its publication, and indeed has had great effect on a number of uh, Jewish thinkers. And the second philosopher I have to struggle with is the Jewish philosopher Leo Strauss, who's been mentioned before last evening in Leora Botnitsky's presentation, and also uh, Martin Yaffe, uh, influenced by his student, Harry Jaffa whose Leo Strauss's most important work was done in America. I mean the last half of his life was spent in America even though he wrote uh, uh, several important works in Germany. But his main work was in America and especially in his seminal 1953 work, Natural Right and History. Um, Now, no faithful Jew could possibly accept Rawls's notion of a social contract for two reasons. One, Rawls recognizes no prior, at least this is the early Rawls, and the, I think the best Rawls actually. Uh, Rawls recognizes no prior, both historical or ontological commitment of the, on the part of the parties to the social contract. The social contract is foundational. It goes all the way down in Richard Rorty's phrase. Now, no faithful Jew could possibly accept that as, okay, you'll accept, okay. Uh,
2: well, this is Most this, this no is, faithful Jew. Uh, <laughs>
1: well, I'm I'm setting myself up for your uh, critique. Fine, <laughs> okay. but Jews are fundamentally committed to God's covenant with Israel, of which the Torah is its constitution, and of which they cannot be ignorant or stand behind a veil of ignorance. Two. Being foundational, that social contract, that is in Rawls's sense, must constitute its own original norms. The parties do not come not only do they not come to the social contract with any economic interests, they come with no normative commitments. The norms are the result of the contract, not brought to it. No one brings any normative baggage to the social contract. But Jews can only be party to a social contract that is secondary to their primary commitment to the covenant. That means that whatever norms emerge from a social contract, a social contract like, that I would see like the American founding in 1776 or the Canadian founding in 1867, and then once again the adoption of the Constitution of the United States in, in 1788, I believe it was, and the, the Charter of Rights and Responsibilities in Canada of 1982, that these norms that emerge from the social contract, of which I think a Jew can enter into good, in good faith, are only secondary norms that maximally apply the prior norms of the Torah and minimally do not contradict these prior norms. Now, what I have tried to do, uh, especially in, in, this, in this last book, uh, The Jewish Social Contract, is to actually argue uh, that the best parties to a social contract are those who come to the social contract with a, with a prior uh, commitment that is prior both historically and ontologically. And I think that it it, it emerges from the following type of argument that I tried to present, and that is that if a social contract is an agreement between strangers, why should I believe the commitment that you make to the social contract? What what reason do I have to believe that you are going to uh, keep your word? Well, of course, as an individual, you might not keep your word. But if I believe and you tell me that you are actually living under a law not of your own making, upon which you attempt to model your subsequent agreements, then even if you as an individual or a scoundrel who breaks the contract, I have something to hold you up to. Whereas if one comes to the social contract naked behind a veil of ignorance, uh, how do I know that you're the same person today that you were yesterday when you made the contract? So that therefore these norms that emerged from the social contract uh, are norms that are secondary. And unfortunately also Rawls like John Dewey seems to think that a democracy can constitute its own culture. That culture can arise out of uh, uh, democracy Rather rather than democracy being dependent on the prior cultures, and I understand by culture, coming from the Latin cultus, that every historical culture has religion and revelation at the foundation of it. And therefore, that a democracy better is dependent on the prior cultures, the parties, to the social contract, bring to it. And these are questions that are uh, being debated at this very moment in terms of numerous areas of of public philosophy. Now, no Jewish philosopher, Dr. Strauss, could possibly accept Strauss's notion that the Hebrew Bible, which, if you are a Jewish philosopher committed to Judaism, and speaking in the first person, you will not call the Hebrew Bible. You would call Torah Tenu Hakadoshah, our Holy Torah. No one could accept Strauss's notion that the Hebrew Bible or our Holy Torah does not, indeed, could not have an idea of nature. That is the idea that a lot underlies the notion of natural right or natural rights. And I have tried to argue in my own work that the concept when Strauss says there's no word for nature in the Hebrew Bible is technically correct. But that the term mishpat, the term for justice, functions as very much with some metaphysical distinctions as decay functions in classical Greek thought. And the reason for this is twofold. First of all, because without an affirmation of human nature... A philosopher cannot effectively discuss, let alone propose, norms that are to apply to every human being in principle, and in fact, to any human being with whom one has ethically, politically significant relations. Two, the the, the, the American and Canadian foundings both speak of natural or human rights. They also both speak of God, too, Uh, if one regards the Declaration of Independence as the Uh, true preamble to the Constitution of the United States, and the first sentence of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Responsibilities is that Canada is founded on uh, the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Here I also disagree on both historical and philosophical grounds with Strauss's assumption of a rupture between classical notions of natural right and modern notions of natural or human rights. Uh, And I think that it can be shown that the notion of even individual rights as individual claims upon other individuals or upon society uh, can be shown to be within the Jewish tradition uh, under several synonyms uh, that one could actually find there. But I cannot find a basis for such rights in my own tradition. But But if I cannot find a basis for such rights in my own tradition, then Jewish philosopher becomes an oxymoron. I can't do that. And thus, if that's the case, then I have to succumb to the intellectual strategy suggested by Strauss in his 1952 book, Persecution and the Art of Writing. And just as a side, I think that one could distinguish, and I was a a student of of, of Leo Strauss for for a short period and was privileged to actually have some conversations uh, with him, but I think that one could divide his real disciples, of which I'm not, between those who think natural right and history is the most important work, and persecution and the art of writing is the most important work. And even though I disagree with natural right and history, I think it's the far more important work for both Jewish thought and indeed uh, uh, secular thought in, uh, in the West. Okay, so my own philosophical task, especially in its American context, has been to show the Jewish validity of the idea of the social contract as the best explanation of the origins of a democratic polity and the best idea upon which, the construct, which, upon which to construct the procedures that make a democratic polity work best for all its citizens. And that good working of a democratic polity founded upon a social contract includes both the best interest of its citizens as individuals who are subjects of natural human rights and the best interest of its citizens as members of historical cultures like Judaism and Christianity and perhaps Islam. In other words, I think that Judaism and Christianity, having gone through the enlightenment, uh, are unable to work out uh, a notion of social contract that is both faithful to their traditions and faithful to a democracy so conceived. Uh, Islam we uh, have to include in that conversation, and hopefully uh, Islamic thinkers will be able to make similar arguments based upon the integrity of their own tradition. Now these historical cultures constituted by revelations, they're constituted by their revelations and they transmitting traditions. Traditio in Latin, Masoret in Hebrew. And on this latter point, this latter point of the rights of citizens as members of historical cultures, I acknowledge the influence of the contemporary Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. To that good working of my democratic polities, both the United States and Canada, I try to show what can be brought to it from the Jewish tradition without the Jewish tradition in any way becoming aufgehoben, that is, transposed into and therefore taken apart, by any democratic polity. In other words, by Jewish commitment and Jewish tradition remain intact, make their contribution, do not attempt to deduce democracy from their premises, nor do they attempt to simply justify themselves as some kind of deduction uh, from a democratic thinking. And finally, my uh, experience uh, as an American philosopher, has influenced the way I look upon Judaism in several ways. First of all, uh, I have tried, based upon undoubtedly my experience in America, to actualize aspects of the Jewish tradition that seem to imply a strong notion of individual or what we would call uh, civil rights. Uh, My argument uh, with, with some rights talk simply is that the problem is, that, in a certain type of democratic discourse, rights only devolve upon individuals, uh, where actually there 's this notion of group rights, and of course, in Judaism, the prime rights belong to uh, to God as creator, lawgiver, and redeemer. so that has been an aspect that I have uh, uh, tried to uh, uh, develop, and I must admit I was somewhat disappointed uh, when, in a uh, reaction to some of this, uh, the late uh, British philosopher Gillian Rose uh, said that uh, uh, from my work she inferred that uh, individual rights are weak or non-existent in the Jewish tradition. I said they have to be actualized. It's not going to jump off the page in your face. But I was disappointed that she drew that kind of a, um, a conclusion. And two, there's been an attempt uh, uh, on, on my part to actualize aspects of the Jewish tradition that seem to imply a preference for popular consensus over hierarchical authority in interhuman. Uh, Relations, and along these lines, uh, I would recommend. And I'm I, I I've forgotten the title. But there was a um, Jewish philosopher named uh, Benjamin Friedman, uh, American who taught at McGill University, died rather young and uh, uh, tragically. Um, uh, wrote a very important book in in bioethics, uh, and I'm convinced that this was influenced by his as, as being a Jewish philosopher, but also influenced by the, the American context where he argued that the usual presentation in Jewish bioethics of a very hierarchical order. Basically, God tells the rabbi what to tell the physician what to tell the patient, Uh, if you want to look at it that way. And Friedman, uh, somebody who knew the Jewish tradition quite well and had the philosophical concerns of contemporary uh, biomedical ethical uh, theory, argued that it is a much more participatory relationship between physician and uh, uh, patient. Much more a question of consent, much more a question of consultation. And I'm convinced that this was, even though it's there in the Jewish tradition, but it was influenced in terms of the context of doing this in the American context. Uh, And of course, three, I've attempted uh, to show how Judaism allows its adherents to be full participants in a democratic polity in a way it cannot allow uh, any such full participation in any other kind of uh, of polity. In other words, clearly I think that for Jews, Jews committed to the Jewish tradition, that being uh, participants in a democratic polity is far superior to being participants in any other kind of polity, including a Jewish theocratic polity. And now, therefore, since I'm an American and not an Israeli citizen, I have to be very careful in terms of uh, my views, in terms of uh, of Israel. But uh, I think one of the great challenges for Jewish philosophers in Israel primarily, and even those of us in the diaspora, is to fully understand how a notion of democratic polity uh, is not only consistent but supportive of uh, a full commitment to the Torah and the uh, uh, Jewish tradition. Thank you.
3: My first mistake, okay. Uh, I wanna begin with a healthy dose of negative theology. Uh, There's nothing necessarily American about that, but we'll get to America in due course. Uh, As I see it, God is beyond any praise we can offer or any category we can devise. At a more basic level, God is not our friend, our personal protector, or our personal advisor. If Moses could not look upon the face of God and had to settle for the backside, uh, the same is true by implication of us. Therefore, whatever knowledge we can have of God is inferential and indirect. According to the passage, God's backside refers to the goodness of God. Uh, thus, Genesis 33:19, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you. I take this to mean that while God is infinite and incomprehensible, the closest we can come to arriving at a workable conception of God is under the rubric of moral agency. That's that's the best we can do. That's uh, how the Torah seeks to present God to us. I emphasize the phrase the closest we can come because strictly speaking, I believe, God is not a moral agent. Thus, any attempt to capture God's greatness through the notions of covenant or contract, is at most our attempt to find a way to think about God, not a literal description. From a Jewish perspective, however, covenant has several advantages to other descriptions. First, it does not imply that God is physically present. Approval or disapproval involves the will, not the flesh. Second, it preserves the unknowability of God by telling us what God has agreed to or commanded, but not what God is. Uh, Maimonides would be proud. Uh, Third, it allows us to sustain a doctrine of imitatio Dei. Although covenants in the ancient world often involved arrangements between stronger and weaker parties, as in suzerain treaties, the agreement is not founded on strength per se. No no covenant as I see it, no real covenant, is founded on strength per se. If it were, the weaker party would be acting under duress and the covenant would no longer be valid. To put this in a different way, a genuine covenant provides a context in which might does not make right. Although God has the power to destroy the entire nation at Sinai and in one midrash actually threatens to do so, the actual uh, story uh, of Sinai reads differently. Not only are there no threats offered, but an invitation is extended. Thus, Genesis 19, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples of the earth. Uh, In context, this passage is striking because unlike Pharaoh, God does not rule by issuing decrees and backing them up with threats, at least not initially. Though God possesses infinitely more power than Pharaoh, God's rule is established by asking for the weaker party's consent. The importance of consent is that it shows that despite an infinite difference between the two parties, it is still possible for the stronger party to respect the weaker. If you obey my voice, not simply obey my voice. It is noteworthy in this regard that even when God speaks in a mocking voice to Job uh, at the end of the story, the title character is never in physical danger and never told what to say or what to think. Were this not the case, were God's authority founded on retaliation rather than respect, the doctrine of imitatio Dei would lead to monstrous results. Hence the connection between Judaism and political liberalism. The authority of government does not arise from the power it is able to wield, but from the degree to which it respects the rights of its citizens. From a historical perspective, the right of a citizen implies a claim that she has over and against the government, over and against the government. Thus, I have a right not to testify against myself or be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment." In Judaism, this feature of the covenant is represented by the fact that it culminates the covenant culminates in a written document to which God, too, is bound. It could be said, therefore, that once God enters into a covenant with Israel, God relinquishes any claim that he might have had to being able to act in an arbitrary or whimsical manner. It is on the basis of this point that the rabbis were able to reject the authority of the Bad Kol, they reject the authority of God's voice coming down from heaven by citing God's Torah against God himself. Let us go deeper. How does a government respect the rights of its citizens? Uh, Simply put, and this is way oversimplified, uh, by asking for and gaining their consent. I take one of the central features of liberalism to be that consent is a presupposition for obligation. Taken by itself, a list of do's and don'ts cannot impose an obligation, even a list that has divine authority behind it. Nor can a litany of blessings and curses. From a moral perspective, the question is not what is it in my interest to do, but rather, what am I obliged to do? No amount of lightning or thunder can answer the latter question, nor can the fact that the lawgiver is of divine origin. For even if we grant the divine origin of the law, an obligation could not arise unless we first assure ourselves that obedience to God is good. Though some may object that God's morality is never in doubt, The Bible indicates otherwise, as disputes with Abraham and two disputes with Moses clearly show. To put this in yet another way, it is not the divine origin of the law that makes it obligatory, but the fact that what the law commands is just. And here I might say that David and I, I think, have been debating this now for 30 years. Uh, As Kant famously put it, A will can only be subject to a law of which it can regard itself as author, where authorship is another name for rational consent. And uh, here I would point out that uh, Kant does not say that I have to be the author of the law. In fact, uh, all he says is I have to be able to regard myself as author. Once consent is given as it is at Sinai, the law is binding and the people can be held to account if they do not live up to it. That is why the people are asked to give their consent over and over again. One is tempted sometimes to say almost ad nauseum. In the words of Nehemiah, we lay on ourselves the obligation to uh, X, Y, Z. If all that were needed for obligation to arise were the commanding voice of God, passages like these would be superfluous, which I uh, suggest they clearly are not. The people would be obliged once God speaks, and that would be the end of the matter. The fact is, however, that the process of giving and receiving, that is, agreeing to being bound by the law, is repeated many times. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, it is infinitely repeatable. From a philosophic perspective, obligation is not transferable. Or obligation as I see it. From a Ken Seaskin's philosophic perspective, obligation is not transferable. It is impossible in principle to create an obligation for someone. So as I see it, not even God can do this or tries to. Again and again, the prophets berate the people by pointing out that in turning to other gods and abusing the poor, they have broken a promise, a promise that they made in the full knowledge of what they were doing. Hence the theme of Israel as a wayward spouse. Uh, If I am right, then only a moral agent or a group of agents can incur an obligation. A moral agent in turn is distinguished by the fact that it has free will. It would be nothing short of paradoxical if obligation were to arise in a situation where a moral agent were asked to abandon his or her freedom and follow orders issued by a superior power. The problem with heteronomy is not just that it deprecates us, but that by deprecating us, it deprecates God. For it affirms that God created beings with free will, but that in dealing with such beings declined to respect it. It is much more in line with decency, not to mention the biblical narrative, to say that God offered the people an arrangement in which the dignity of all sides is respected and preserved. In fact, preserving and respecting the dignity of all sides is the whole point of entering into the arrangement in the first place. It will be objected that I have read the biblical narrative in a distinctly modern way, not to mention a distinctly American way. But anyone, well, I shouldn't say anyone acquainted with the history of Jewish philosophy, uh, um, let's say uh, all those who would agree with me about the history of Jewish (laughs) philosophy uh, can see that this is not so. Uh, The argument over exactly what the people heard at Sinai is as old as the Torah itself. Uh, Was it a majestic sound? Uh, Was it a voice speaking actual propositions? Was it simply the commanding presence of God? Stripped of its metaphorical husk, revelation is not an auditory phenomenon, but an intellectual one. Not the hearing of a voice, but the recognition of the wisdom the voice contains. As such, revelation always involves, nay has to involve, a judgment on our part. In the case of Sinai, it is the judgment that what God asks of us is nothing other than what we, in our better judgments, would, better moments would ask of ourselves. In short, the giving of rational consent. Along these lines, Yehezkel Kaufman points out that neither the idea of law itself nor the particular contents of the law originated at Sinai. According to Jewish tradition, basic principles of morality were first given to Noah, but even Noah was not the first to hear them, Cain and the generation of the flood were judged by them and thus must have been familiar with them. In keeping with rabbinic tradition, Maimonides argues, in fact, that six commandments were given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is all a way of saying, as that great liberal Jewish theologian David Novak uh, has said, that unless people had prior knowledge of good and evil or as we might say, the capacity to distinguish right from wrong, their participation in the covenant would be capricious. My point is that they can distinguish right from, if they can distinguish right from wrong, they are moral agents able to understand what it means to be under an obligation and thus to give their consent. Now let us yet go again a step further. If they are moral agents, then for all their faults they are worthy of respect, by each other, and ultimately by God. Indeed, most of all by God, because God is the only one able to see the full nature of what moral agency requires. Does this mean that the Torah, or more generally, the Bible contains an unswerving commitment to humanity as an end in itself? Of course not. The Bible does not even contain an unswerving commitment to monotheism, and that, by all accounts, is the central focus of its teaching. Rather, it means that the Bible can be read as putting us on a trajectory according to which the dignity of every moral agent is the obvious conclusion. We can see this in the claim that all humanity is made in the image of God, that it offends God when innocent blood is shed, that God loves the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, that it is wrong to abhor an Egyptian, and that one must love the stranger as one loves oneself." We can view these claims either as divine commandments, uh, as I think uh, David is inclined to do, or as consequences and presuppositions of rationality, as I'm inclined to do. But however we view them, we must uh, ensure that the dignity of every moral agent remains intact. Thus, any claim to the effect that God does not respect the dignity of human beings or that we do not have to must be rejected. I repeat, to respect the dignity of a moral agent is to ask for his or her consent. Needless to say, consent is a complicated notion, uh, uh, perhaps infinitely complicated. Whether in philosophical parlance or in everyday legal matters, there can be implied consent, virtual consent, or actual consent. Though I have not formally declared my allegiance to the Bill of Rights and was not around when it was ratified, it makes perfectly good sense to say that by remaining an American citizen, I have implicitly or tacitly offered my consent. By contrast, a minor who agrees to have sexual relations with an adult has not given her consent, no matter how much she may insist she wants to become involved. Nor has a person who volunteers to become a slave. It is even possible to say, and I guess I would say, uh, that if I do something I regret, uh, I disapprove of what I did, and in that sense did not really offer my consent to it. Clearly there is more to this issue than I can cover in the allotted time. Let me simply say that in the sense in which I am using it, consent involves more than simply saying yes or nodding your head. In particular, it involves a minimal minimal level of maturity and understanding as well as sufficient clarity about the action at hand. That is why Moses is careful to write down all of God's words very clearly. Deuteronomy 20. The idea is that the people have not just said yes, but they have done so with an appreciation of what they are doing. As we saw, they are already aware of the immorality of murder, stealing, lying, and promise-breaking. As far as I can tell, there are no passages where the people offer their consent in ignorance of what they are doing. Even the famous words, na'aseb and Ishma occur after the Ten Commandments and the body of law, known as the Covenant Code, have been offered, accepted, and read back at least once. Looking beyond Sinai and the authority of the written law, uh, uh, there is even Maimonides' claim that the ordinances and decrees promulgated on the basis of rabbinic authority are binding on all Jews, because all Jews gave their consent and agreed to live by them. That brings me to America in the 21st century. In principle, this is a nation committed to the principles I have defended. In view of the historical circumstances in which it was founded, it had little choice but to leave God out of the contract, uh, out of the equation. If it had brought God in, it may well have kept Jews out. From a Jewish perspective, the problem with America, or any liberal democracy, is that it is designed to protect life and property, to promote happiness and ensure tranquility, but not to seek spiritual or metaphysical perfection. And that, of course, is left to the individual. Strictly speaking, the government is neutral with respect to religious matters, which means that in principle it neither promotes religion nor interferes with it. The classical objection to such a view is that a government that ignores the spiritual needs of its citizens ignores the single most important fact about them. As Maimonides would say, uh, such a government is concerned with people's social or bodily needs but completely ignores their intellectual ones. The liberal reply is that because spiritual questions cannot be answered with certainty, and the citizens of a modern state typically come from a wide range of religions and ethnic traditions, it is best for government to leave spiritual matters alone. I need not point out that this view of government has been a great boon for Jews and that for centuries Jews have supported liberal movements and causes of various descriptions. But again, let us go deeper. Maimonides would be the first to admit that not all spiritual questions can be answered with certainty. What separates him from a liberal is that for Maimonides, the fact that spiritual questions cannot be decided with certainty is regrettable. It's too bad. That's something that we don't like, but but we have to accept. If such questions could be decided with certainty, we would stand a better chance of refuting ignorance and bringing more people into a state of intellectual perfection. For the liberal, exactly the opposite is true. It is a good thing a good, a real good thing, uh, that such questions cannot be decided with certainty because certainty in such matters would amount to dogmatism. Now Putnam, Hilary Putnam says this at one point. Do we really want religious issues to be decided with the same finality that we decide the truth of the Pythagorean theorem? Recall that Kant's main objection to metaphysics is not the conclusions it reaches. That's where I think people get him wrong. It's not the conclusions that metaphysics reaches. It's the certainty or the dogmatism with which it claims to reach them. That's what he objected to. For the liberal, then, certainty in matters relating to God, the soul, and the afterlife is not only suspect but morally objectionable in its own right because it compromises the freedom of each person to seek her own answer or no answer at all. To paraphrase Kant, the liberal wants to limit government to make room for faith. If every moral agent is an end in him or herself, every moral agent must be given the space in which to search for answers to ultimate questions. This does not mean that religious tradition has nothing worthwhile to say on such matters, but that the judge of whether it is anything worthwhile to say should be the agent, him or herself, and not a body of government officials. There's no simple answer to the question to what form of government is Judaism committed and maybe no complex answer either. Maimonides thought it was kingship, uh, but there's way too much evidence in the Hebrew Bible against that uh, for that to hold up. Uh, I've I've tried to make a case for liberal democracy, but honesty forces me to admit there is contrary evidence here as well. Theocracy, maybe. But I suspect the idea of a nation of priests was intended as a rejection of politics, as we normally understand it, rather than a well-articulated alternative. As a liberal, I take comfort in the fact that our tradition has no shortage of people who rose to challenge authority, whether human or divine, whether Jewish or Gentile, whether in Israel or the diaspora. Indeed, the religion was founded by a person who left his native culture and set out for a strange new land. Its greatest prophet first heard the voice of God as as a criminal living in exile. For a variety of reasons, it has always been wary of kings, princes, and established centers of political power. In short, it is a religion that takes the claims of conscience seriously, that resists proselytizing and forced conversion, that has ample experience of what it is like to live or die under tyranny. And that takes me back to my central theme, the extent to which Judaism goes out of its way to ensure that God is not pictured as a tyrant there is, after all, uh, uh, this is, after all, a God who, despite possessing infinite power, seeks the consent not only of people in positions of authority, but of women, children, even hewers of wood and drawers of, of water. In some, it is a religion in which a liberal can feel very much at home. As for America, uh, if it succeeds as a nation, I think, It is because it eschews. It gives up all the things that other nations take pride in. A common religion, a common language, a common history, a common ethnicity, a common food, even a common way of life. I'm well aware that these are the things of Fourth of July orations and that they're typically eulogized. Uh, then, but from my perspective, they all amount to a pack of lies. America is an abstract nation founded on rights rather than similarity in material circumstances. Unlike the French Revolution, America offers liberty and equality, but as I see it, says nothing about fraternity. Thank heavens. It is, in other words, an abstract nation Just as the Jewish God is an abstract God, a God who asks for consent but has no material form. So here I am, a Jew and an American, saying hurrah for abstraction. Thank you.
0: At this point, we'll take questions.
3: I, I, I have no no quarrel.
0: Repeat the question before Professor Seaskin responds. Uh, P- 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 Professor Goodman asked whether t- t- pluralism was a better ground for for a
3: liberal polity than skepticism. That's it. On. Well, yeah, I I don't I, I don't know that I would call it skepticism. Uh, I mean a lot right, of yeah a lot of the uh, uh, the liberal tradition uh, let us say this arises uh, uh, at a time and, and for good reason. Uh, in which we have a, a whole philosophical project which is uh, the, the critique of knowledge, the critique of claims of, of, of knowledge. Uh, uh, Kant is one example, but uh, by, by no means uh, uh, the only one. I think... That's
2: historical connection. No, no, I understand
3: that, but, 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 but I think one of the, if, if you ask yourself why, why are a lot of these thinkers uh, interested in the critique of, uh, of, of knowledge. Uh, why are they in that tradition? Uh, the answer is, I think, because they're looking back on centuries of religious warfare, of intolerance, of, uh, of various forms of persecution. They, basically, what they've seen is Europe tear itself apart. Uh and so uh what they're saying uh is uh wait a minute, uh uh are you are you abs- first of all, are you absolutely certain that you can uh, uh, uh that the claims you're making uh, uh can be established, number one. And 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 then the, the the second question, which in some ways is even more important, do you even want to have certainty on these claims? Well even
2: if you have certainty, you still would be
3: Yeah. So you're saying, in principle, even if I could uh, prove God's existence, or prove the, all, all the other claim, monotheism monotheism, the claims of religion, that I still would have no uh, legitimate ground for oppression. That's
2: right. Yeah. I think Yeah. is wrong because it's oppressive, not, not good as
3: certain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I. I. Uh, I guess I want to have both, but but I I, 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 I I'm in complete agreement.
0: Uh
4: yeah this is a question for Dave. It's about the, uh, the suggestion. Says about atheists and papists uh, in the letter on toleration that uh, everybody's accepted accepted. Accept-
1: I don't necessarily say we make the, the best citizens, but the, the, the argument is not uh, who should be included and who should not be included. Uh, anyone who can basically uh, affirm the, uh, uh, the social contract for any or no reasons uh, should be included in it. But um, what I have to ask myself as, as a Jew committed to the Jewish tradition is once again, Uh, how can I participate in this polity in good faith, Uh, not simply using it uh, deviously, Um, and what do I have to uh, uh, offer uh, that polity? And what I have to offer that polity is as follows. I think that democratic polity, by definition, is a polity of limited government. Uh, for very different reasons than can, I would say, a democratic policy does not make any metaphysical claims, ought not to make any metaphysical claims about its citizens. That being said, uh, the fact that it does not make those metaphysical claims can imply that those metaphysical claims are made properly elsewhere, uh, and that elsewhere is – Knesset Israel, the, the, the Jewish people of which I am part, of which the Torah is their constitution. Uh, and therefore, I, in that sense, what I bring to the social contract is, number one, uh, a standard um, by which uh, I can be held for the commitment that I've made. Uh, and number two, as I'm less likely to look upon the democratic polity uh, to fulfill my metaphysical needs Uh, because they're fulfilled elsewhere uh, by, in fact, a greater polity uh, of which I am part. Uh, And I think that that's good for democracy. I think that the problem with democracy, uh, and many who have attempted, especially uh, when I refer to Dewey, those who have attempted to see culture being created by democracy rather than presupposed by it, uh, have basically attempted to look to a polity such as the United States or Canada or whatever, such as the United States, as somehow or other having a metaphysical, indeed an eschatological kind of function in the world. So the question becomes, do we say that metaphysical claims are private, individual, inner? uh, Or do we say that metaphysical claims are made by a greater society uh, having a priority both historically and ontologically to the democratic polity of which I am uh, part? Uh, And therefore I would uh, disagree with Ken uh, that these metaphysical needs can be satisfied privately uh, rather than being part of a, of a greater polity that has a law of its own. Um, uh, in that sense, I'm excluding nobody from, from the social contract, but very much uh, in the sense, uh, although very differently in content, but very really in the sense that Moses Mendelssohn uh, argued why Jews could be uh, uh, good citizens of the emerging secular polity that was happening in in, in Germany uh, uh, at, at his time.
3: Yeah, um, I, I guess I'd have to say uh, uh, here to go back uh, that I'm reading this tradition as if it's on a trajectory. In other words, if if if, if you, ha, has it always defended democratic principles and, and so I mean is, is every single passage consistent with the reading that I've uh, the reading that I've given? Uh, no. You know, so I, I, I would have to say that uh, what I'm uh, doing is uh, offering you what is in some sense a selective reading. What, I, what I'm doing is, uh, uh, as Cohen would say, I'm giving you an idealized version uh, uh, of what I take the tradition to be committed to. Uh, and I'm doing that, uh, 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 I'm not concealing that. I have no reason to want to conceal it. Uh, and that that uh, uh, trajectory uh, uh, is uh, uh, not only compatible with uh, liberal democracy in some sense it it uh, it affirms the very tradition on which liberal democracy is based or as I understand it uh, now uh, again you can you can say Seaskin uh, this is a projective reading this is uh, uh, you know you're, you're you're twisting the text to, to make it uh, cohere with what uh, 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 with the political system and that that you yourself are now a member of uh, yeah all true uh, but uh, I I just uh, well let's put it this way there are just too many passages in there, and here I'm not just talking about the the legal passages, I'm talking about the the literary, the the, the narrative of the story. There are just too many passages in there where uh, uh, a liberal like me is reading along and says, yes, yes, you know, there are just too many passages in an ancient text where a liberal like me is is standing up and cheering and, and, and people becoming my heroes. Uh, 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 for me not to think that somehow or other the ideals uh, of resistance to authority, tyranny, and uh, liberal democracy uh, 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 are here in, in nascent form. And uh, uh, hence the passage that I uh, cited uh, from uh, Nitzavim at uh, the, the end of the Torah, uh, the, that everyone is present, not just the, the princes and the, the uh, generals and, and the people in authority, uh, one of the rare passages which the women, the children, everyone uh, 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 is there to offer uh, consent. Uh, yeah, that passage is there for a reason. Uh, in, in my view, that's, that's the rhetorical climax of the Torah.
1: Yeah, um, in, in answer to uh, Mr. Galston's, uh question, uh, Does a notion of democracy emerge from the Jewish tradition? Does it point in that direction? Um, I think it does to a a certain extent. Um, I mean, if the two basic, if one can take the two basic notions of democratic polity, being the consent of the governed and individual rights, as being two of the features that we would associate uh, and how those can be integrated is, is, is another question, then I think that... In terms of the way Jewish communities um, have functioned, uh, that is Jewish communities that have been faithful to the Jewish tradition, I think that those elements have been present there uh, and therefore Jews would, uh, because of that ex- inner experience, uh, uh, would resonate to, uh, to democratic polity uh, precisely because it makes those ethical claims but does not make the metaphysical claims that, uh, that the Torah does. Um, that being said, uh, even though uh, Kanciskan and I have been uh, discussing, debating I suppose, but discussing these, these questions in, in different positions and we, we nuance them differently. I mean, thank God I think neither of us just repeats them and that's always, uh, it's always a pleasure to hear um, uh, kind of a different spin on, uh, on your position. But I, I, I think that the question summarizes precisely what our basic difference is. Our basic difference is as follows. I would argue, and I think that I have a lot more on the Jewish tradition on my side than you do on yours, uh, but that's another story. Uh, but I would argue on coherence grounds, let alone correspondence grounds, that the covenantal obligation, that is God's commandment to first indirectly to all humankind in the covenant of Noah, but at Sinai, does not depend for its validity on the consent of the governed. God is to be obeyed. Uh, and in one of this book, I think it was Sinai and Zypress or John Levinson at, at Harvard, a biblical scholar, argued that it's inconceivable to think, according to the biblical authors, as it were, that the people could have made any other, another could have said to God, we're sorry, we're, we're not interested, um, we'll come back tomorrow after talking to our lawyer, uh, we want to negotiate a few points, uh, and this sort of thing. A total commitment is demanded by nothing less. Now, even though consent de jure, is not required. Dissent de facto is required in the sense that the Torah is not going to be operative in any way that is politically successful unless it has the consent of the people. And therefore, there's the famous Midrash in in Shabbat 88a, where God even when forcing uh, the Torah on the Jewish people uh, doesn't mean it wasn't valid, but they basically didn't live by it during the days of the first temple. It's only in the second temple in exile when they voluntarily reaccepted the Torah that really the Torah became the constitution of the Jewish people, through, especially through the development of of, of the of, of the oral Torah. So the consent is something which is secondary, uh, just like democracy. Democratic consent is secondary to a more primary. Uh, obligation to the law of God, and the law of God, uh, and especially the law of God, as understood uh, in terms of its universal precepts, or what one might call natural law. Um, So I think that that is a very important uh, 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 kind of difference. I also think that in terms of you're talking now in the American context, uh, this idea that a Jewish religious commitment uh, can survive or even flourish is basically a private option within a larger public sphere of, of, of a democratic polity uh, is uh, uh, something that is that is questionable uh, on even sociological grounds, let alone
3: theological or, or philosophical. Could, could I follow up? Yeah, sure. I, yeah, maybe this really is a difference, and I, I guess I think a difference in principle. I don't see how a commanding voice, no matter whose voice it is, can obligate me to do anything. I, I, if, if it asks for rational consent, yes, okay. Uh, but just the voice itself, even if it's a voice from heaven, a bot call, if it's a voice from heaven, In principle, I don't see how any obligation whatsoever uh, uh, follows from that. As for the uh, issue that David raised about, uh, well, talk to your lawyer, come back in a few days and uh, we'll see how things go. That is exactly what the Torah does. All the time. Passage after passage, what happens? The, the, The stuff is written down, come back, make sure you've got it right, Read it over again. Are you sure this is what you want? Is this absolutely what you said? This, this idea of writing down, reading back and recommitment, uh, recommitting, is done again and again and again, and it's done for a reason, because it's making the principle here that uh, the incentive to, uh, to do this, the incentive to agree, uh, is the rationality of what's offered and not any kind of a threat. And uh, uh, here I uh, uh, not only speak as an American, but as a a resident of the state of Illinois, uh, refinancing your uh, mortgage in Illinois. You want to get practical? When you refinance your mortgage in the state of Illinois, you have three days. You sign sign the contract, and you have three days to pull out, and you don't have to give a reason. You take the contract home and read it over again. If for any reason at all you don't like what that contract says, you have three days, uh, and you can pull out. There's uh, there's no uh, penalty. There's no there's no breach. The contract is invalid. Uh, uh, why? Because uh, uh, what it's saying is we want to make sure that you uh, haven't been rushed into this, that you understand what you're doing, that you've slept on it. This is what you. Uh, 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 genuinely want. You, you've given rational consent. This represents your considered judgment on the issue. Uh, and I would argue that uh, that's what the Torah does again and again. It's, it's exactly the same principle. It's Professor George.
5: Uh, yes, I uh, want
3: My dues with the ACLU are completely paid up, if that's your question. (laughs)